This morning, we will be in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. I apologize, I forgot to look and see what page that is on in your Spanish Bibles. Uh, whoever's uh, back there uh, this morning maybe can give you guys a heads up on the Spanish Bible page. In the English Bibles, it's on page 811. As you're finding your place this morning, I was thinking about a movie that came out several years ago. Maybe several is even kind, but uh, the movie is Bruce Almighty. I don't know how many of you uh, saw Bruce Almighty when it came out or maybe have seen it since, but Bruce Almighty takes a comedic look at what it would be like to be God, right? Bruce, played by Jim Carrey, complains and rages against God after the worst day of his life. He has this day that just like everything goes wrong and he's having the worst day he's ever had. And he complains and, and rain, uh, rails against God. And so God's like, all right. And he, God gives uh, Bruce these divine powers to see if, quote, he can do any better at being God. And one deleted scene that... Uh, uh, I, I saw you know, years ago watching this, and one deleted scene, there's, a, there's a, a chubby young boy who's in gym class, and he's being ridiculed by the jocks in the class as he's attempting to climb the ropes. And one of those kids says something like, oh yeah, this ought to be good. Filbert's going to try to climb the rope. Maybe if there were a hot dog at the top, he could do it, and everybody laughs and points at him and makes fun of him. And Philbert, in the midst of being ridiculed, prays, God, help me. And Bruce, acting as God, answered his prayer by giving Philbert incredible strength. And all of a sudden, he found himself with the ability to climb right up the rope at lightning speed. And he gets the admiration of his peers. And at the top, the boy whispers, thank you, God. But then... The real God, played by Morgan Freeman, which I'm not sure why Morgan Freeman gets to play God, showed Bruce the ramifications of his intervention in Philbert's life. Bruce was amazed to see that Philbert's personality had changed. In one scene, we see Philbert beating up another kid in the schoolyard while those same jocks that were ridiculing him are cheering him on. And Bruce said, why, that's Philbert. What's gotten into him? And God replies to Bruce, oh, yes, Philbert, brilliant young man. He was going to be a great poet. The soul of his work would have been built around his childhood pain. Now he's headed for a career as a professional wrestler. He'll eventually test positive for steroid use and end up managing a muffin shop. Now, I'm not sure what's wrong with a muffin shop, but, I mean, that sounds like a pretty awesome job. And Bruce says, well, that's a disappointment. And God says, he got what he prayed for. And then he adds, since when do people have a clue what they want? You know, prayer is a staple of every major religion. It's a staple of even those religions that we wouldn't consider a major religion. Even non-religious people, quote unquote, pray at certain times. And with so many people praying you'd think we'd understand prayer. You'd think we have a pretty good idea of what prayer is and how prayer functions 
And yet, like Bruce found out, we often don't have a clue. If you're here this morning and you don't understand prayer, don't feel like you're faithful when it comes to prayer, don't pray enough, don't believe in prayer, or believe you have prayer all figured out, I think this is where you need to be this morning. Not understanding prayer puts us in the company of the disciples, those friends of Jesus, those closest companions of Jesus, his most devout followers when Jesus was on the earth. And the reason I know it puts us in company with them is because in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus had finished praying, his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something about the way that Jesus prayed that was different than what the disciples had ever experienced. Now, these disciples had grown up in the Jewish faith. It's not like they didn't know how to pray. It's not like they hadn't prayed their whole lives. But there's something about the way that Jesus prayed that caused his disciples to say, Lord, teach us to pray. They needed help. They needed to learn. And that's where we are this morning. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. This is, as I said, this is the Matthew's account of what happened in Luke chapter 11. And Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples and by extension to us. Lord, a prayer in itself and a prayer to also form and transform our prayers. Lord, we pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we begin a seven-week series called Teach Us to Pray. Last week I, I shared that I spent time at the Spanish River Church Planters Retreat. I've attended this retreat for years. Those of you who have been a part of the church have heard me talk about this uh, about going to this retreat uh, every year. And I, I go not as a representative of our church, but as a representative of our Three Rivers Church Planning Network and our presbytery that we are a part of. And during the leaders' gathering, Dr. Tom Wood, who was leading our session, reminded us that the work of the church begins with prayer. 
But the work of God's people is multifaceted, happens in multiple ways, and multiple times, in multiple places, through multiple means, but it always and everywhere, no matter what, begins with prayer. He travels all over the world, Dr. Wood does, and he says that he's convinced that the church in North America does not pray. He's convinced that the church in North America does not pray. It's pretty kind of startling words to hear that the church, in his estimation, in his mind, as he travels around the world, is convinced that the church in North America does not pray. Not that we don't say prayers. Not that we don't pray, per se, but as he talked about what prayer should be and what prayer is and how he prays and what, how we pray in the North American church in particular, is we pray for ourselves, we pray for our needs, we pray for our desires, which may or may not include other people's needs, desires, or what they're going through. I was convicted. I was convicted because as he spoke, his critique rang true in my own life. That my prayer life is way too often focused on me. Now, as Dr. Wood reminded us, the Bible and God welcomes us to pray for ourselves, to pray for our needs, for our desires. But the Bible doesn't end. God doesn't end with wanting our prayers to focus on ourselves, our needs, or even our church and our church's needs, our church's desires. You see, what we see in the scriptures that prayer is much bigger than that. Prayer is not limited to us. You see, as he was talking, he was saying that our prayer, as North American Christians in particular, is limited both in scope and quantity. Our scope of our prayers are so focused that we forget that God's kingdom, God's world, is much bigger. The quantity of our prayer is so focused on us and our needs and our desires that we forget or we don't care about the needs of others. And I have to say that as it, that critique rang true in my own life, I have to confess to you all that as that critique rang true in my life, as your pastor, I have failed, I believe, to lead this congregation in a life of rich prayer. So I confess that to you this morning. That as I see that in my own life, I see that in the life of our congregation as well. But I was encouraged as well. Not only was I brought to this conviction, but I was also encouraged because in that room, it wasn't just 
North American Christians. In that room, we had people representing churches in Brazil and churches in all parts of Europe and churches in Africa and churches in China and churches in other parts of Asia. We had churches represented from all over the world. And as we heard about those Christians around the world about the prayers that they are praying for the work of the gospel, at the same time that I was convicted of my own need and our need for prayer, I was encouraged by the word of the church. The word of the church universal proclaiming that, in fact, the Lord hears and answers our prayers in ways that we can never hope or imagine. And so I need this series. That may sound a bit selfish. But as I thought about what our next series was going to be, I knew that it needed to be about prayer. I need this series, and I hope that you will come along with me on this journey over the next seven weeks. And let me just say, we cannot exhaust in seven weeks this topic of prayer. But I do hope and pray that we will deepen our understanding, that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and learn to pray as Jesus has taught us. Before we get to Jesus' teaching here on prayer, he gives us a couple examples of how not to pray. In verses 5 through 8, he gives what would have been well-known examples to his audience, and we can probably get a pretty good idea of what he's getting at when he talks about not being like the hypocrites, not standing on the street corner, not being the synagogue. But I just want to give you a little bit of example or a little bit deeper understanding of what Jesus is getting at here. This example of the hypocrites, the opportunities for their street corner performances, as we might say, they were kind of exhibitionists, uh, exhibitionist prayers. And and the reason that Jesus talks about this is not that it was bad to pray on the street corner, not that it was bad to stop wherever you are and pray, but what Jesus was getting at is that at this time, there was certain times of the day during the sacrifice when prayer was required. Wherever you were, you stopped and prayed, and everybody knew what those times were. The trumpet would sound, you would stop, you would pray. It was also during times of fasting, they would stop and pray when the trumpet sounded. But again, remember, everybody knew these times. And so what Jesus is talking about is not the fact that people were out and about and doing the, their daily work or, or whatever they were called to do in the hustle and bustle of life, and that they were stopping to pray. But he was talking about those people who were like, all righty, it's five minutes to one. I better get out there and walk to that corner. And when I get to that corner, the trumpet's going to sound, and then everybody's going to see me praying. Everybody's going to see how godly and good I am. And that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Because it wasn't about the prayer itself. It was about what they received from the prayer. They were the ones that were seen as the most holy, as the best prayers, as the ones who were always doing their duty to pray. And that's why Jesus talks about, hey, stay in your home, stay in your room. He's not saying that public prayer is bad. 
But he's saying, if you're not already out and about, don't run out of your house and out of your room so you can be out in the street when it's time to pray so everybody can see you. Pray where you are. And if it's in secret, even better. He gives that, he gives that example. And then the example of praying in the synagogues and this is one I think that hits close to you know, many pastors or those who are leading some kind of prayer service or worship service because in those days, synagogue prayer was led by a member of the congregation. And as you can imagine, it's easy to become preachy, using all the right cliches and dramatic pauses and voice variations to impress those in attendance with your prayers. So Jesus is reminding us that that's not the kind of prayer that our Father desires. He moves on to the Gentiles, those who don't believe, right? The Gentiles were anyone who was not a Jew. The Gentiles, they believed in gods, but they did not believe in the one true God. Those who don't believe, they just kind of throw their petitions into the air hoping they'll be heard, and they just say a lot of words, hoping that if they get the right incantation going, that something will happen and that they'll be heard and that the gods will respond and reply to their desires. Maybe somebody somewhere out there will hear and respond. And so as Jesus gives us these examples, as he says before he teaches us to pray, he says, don't be like this. We have to stop and ask ourselves, do we find ourselves in either of these examples? Do we pray as hypocrites or as unbelievers? Jesus isn't condemning, as I said, public prayer. He's condemning the desire to see being seen praying publicly. You know, the early church thrived on public prayer. We see this so powerfully in the first few chapters of Acts that the, people, that the fellowship of believers were gathering together for prayer over and over again. We see that their prayers were heard by God to, and released those who were in prison. So God is not saying, Jesus is not saying that public prayer is wrong or bad. It's the heart that he's getting at. What is our desire in how we pray. Don't pray for your own glory. Don't think that saying lots of words will get God's attention, but rest in the fact that you have a heavenly Father. See, Jesus says in verse 6, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Rest in the fact that you have a heavenly Father not a genie, right? You got to rub the lamp just right. He's not a cosmic vending machine, as Oliver talked about last week. You don't have to like put the money in and hit it just right to get what you want out of it. He's not activated by some magical inv- in- incantation. It's not like we have to say a lot of hocus pocus to get God to work how we want him to work. He's your father. He's my father. Before we move on, I'll just have to just briefly say this. I know that for many of us, the image of a father is not one that's easily accessible. For many reasons, there are those of us in this room 
who think of our earthly father, and if we try to think of God, the way that we have been treated or viewed by our earthly father does not give us easy access to thinking of our God as a heavenly father. And yet God still reveals himself in that way. And so God says that even as your earthly father has failed you, I will never fail you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never hurt you. So God seeks to repair that image of the father that we might struggle with and wants us to see him as the truest version of a father, even for those in this room who had a wonderful earthly father. Your father still had shortcomings. And God says, I am the one who has no shortcomings. Come to me. I will not hurt you. I will care for you. I love you. You know, It's interesting, as we look at Scripture, God is only referred to as Father 14 times in the Old Testament. And it's always as the corporate Father of Israel. There's never an individual sense of God's being a Father in the Old Testament. It's always corporately. But when Jesus' disciples ask Him to pray, Jesus tells them to begin by calling their God their Father, their Abba as I talked about with the kids this morning. And Jesus uses this understanding of how we're to address God 60 times in reference to God. He's taking the fatherhood of God from the theological doctrine to a personal, practical experience. God is not theologically father. God is your father. He's my father. He teaches the disciples to pray with that same intimacy. And that is what he does for us when he says, pray like this, our Father, our Papa, our Abba. Because your Heavenly Father knows you, pray like this, Jesus says. And I'm just going to quickly go through his name, his kingdom, his provision, his forgiveness, and his deliverance. And then over the next seven weeks, we are going to unpack those things using different parts of Scripture. His name. Remember God's name? God's special name? Yahweh? If you were here during our series in Exodus, you'll remember that God has a personal name. It's not a title. Lord, as we see it in the Old Testament, written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's not a title. It is God's personal name. It is his special name. It is the name that describes his nature. It's his covenantal name, a name that describes his never giving up, always and forever love. And Jesus teaches that we are to come to our Father with the understanding of this name. And we are to ask that God would honor his name. Hallowed be your name. Honor your name, God. What your name means What Yahweh means, the never giving up, always and forever, faithful God, honor that throughout your creation. Honor that in my life. 
help all of creation to understand who your name, what your name means and who you are, and help me to understand and revere your name as well. We are asking God to make his name holy everywhere, especially in our own hearts. When we pray this way, we're making God's holiness our highest priority and asking him to promote this holiness in, around, and through us. So we pray like this in his name. We pray his kingdom. Jesus reminds us to look for the day when he will return, perfectly redeem the world, this fallen world, when he will establish the kingdom in its fullness. But we're not just praying for something that will happen in the future. We pray that the purposes of God's kingdom be experienced here and now on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray these first two petitions, we are reoriented. We are asking God to recalibrate our hearts to seek his honor, to seek his kingdom, that his purposes become our purposes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this doesn't negate or rule out prayers for our needs and concerns, but he, it places them in the proper order because next, Jesus says to pray for his provision. Right? We pray his name, we pray his kingdom, we pray his prov provision. Our daily bread is often seen as a request for God to provide the necessities of life, which it is. We are to pray that God will provide even our daily bread. But this shouldn't keep us from understanding that praying for more than just the simple necessities of life. Scripture tells us that God not only wants, us, wants to bless us with the necessities of life, but he wants to bless the desires of our heart. Psalm 37. Yet those desires to be aligned with delighting yourself in the Lord, which goes back to our first two petitions that, God give, that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer. And this petition, this provision is not merely for our physical and material needs and desires. We're praying that God would provide all that is needed for our physical and spiritual well-being. You know, God most often uses ordinary means to meet our physical and spiritual needs through our labors and our loves. Through our work, school, family, friends, the meals we eat, the air we breathe, the clothes we wear, the fellowship of believers, and the list goes on and on and on. And yet, in our prayer, we are asking that the Lord reorient us to His purpose. We are asking God to provide our greatest satisfaction through the things that He determines will most glorify Him in our lives. In reality, we are praying that God will provide all that is best for us, which will sustain our faith. And sometimes this means that God will even allow suffering, which doesn't feel like provision. And yet Jesus assures us that he is with us, even in our sufferings. We're also to pray his forgiveness. Forgive us our debts or sins, as Jesus says in Luke 11. And we can only seek forgiveness because of Jesus who lived a sinless life, who gave his life by shedding his blood and paid the penalty for our sin and for all who trust in him. Whoever seeks, forgives, receives God's mercy forever. The more we grow in grace, the more we understand ourselves as a child of God, the more we recognize our constant need of grace. 
And what's interesting is something that I think we often miss, and I'll just quickly talk about this because I think it is so important. We'll unpack it more in a few weeks. Do you realize this isn't a one-time petition? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. You see, Jesus is giving us this as a pattern for our prayer life. And so Jesus is saying that we, on a daily, even sometimes hourly basis, need to be praying and asking God to forgive us of our sin. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and me that seeking forgiveness should be a pattern in our prayer. That our sin, even our sinful patterns, that desire, that thought, that action that you know, you know the ones, right? The ones that make you feel defeated, feel unlovable, feel unworthy, etc. Listen to me, brothers and sisters in Christ. I know there are some of you who this morning are saying, I can't keep asking for forgiveness for this sin in my life. Jesus asks you to. Jesus tells you to. And the reason he tells you to do that Because I know, I know, for some of you it feels like I keep asking, it means I'm a failure. It means I can't overcome this in my life. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, keep asking. Keep asking for forgiveness. And you know why we can keep asking? Because we cannot exhaust God's mercy. You and I cannot exhaust the mercy of God in our lives. We cannot exhaust the grace of God in our lives. There is nothing that we can do that can exhaust the mercy and grace of God. And so Jesus says, keep coming back to your Father and asking for forgiveness. You cannot exhaust the grace of God. And when we pray this way, we acknowledge that sin affects our lives, but we also acknowledge that his grace is greater than all of our sin, and it secures our pardon. We not only confess the weakness in our nature, but we honor the grace of his nature. And that this forgiveness that we receive in Christ Jesus allows us and enables us to forgive others. It is not a requirement of the forgiveness that we receive. It is a outpouring of the forgiveness that we receive in Christ Jesus. Finally, his deliverance. Jesus isn't teaching that God tempts us. Sometimes people have said, well, he says, and lead us not into temptation. Is Jesus teaching that God tempts us? No. We know that God does not, cannot be tempted and does not tempt anyone, James 1.13. But... We are tempted by selfish priorities and evil desires that cause us to forsake the will of God. And the trials that God uses to build up our faith are those that Satan then takes to hijack and to use to tear down our faith. What God intends for good, Satan intends for evil. And whether the circumstance that we find ourselves is a trial or temptation is not the circumstance itself, but it is our heart. Jesus teaches us to know the capabilities of our heart and to ask God to keep us in his will. Dr. Brian Chappell says that lead us not into temptation is a way of saying, Lord, keep us from acting in ways that would prevent us from honoring you. 
Keep us from being tempted by not having our needs met and take from, a, take from us preoccupation for our wants. Erase from our lives anything that would tempt us to dishonor you. Jesus teaches that when we pray this way, we're praying for rescue from temptation. We ask God to make his will our desire to dominate our thoughts and actions with his purpose. We've gone through each of the individual petitions, and as I said, we will unpack each of these more fully. But if you notice that one thing that I didn't talk about in there is thy will be done or your will be done. And that's because all of the petitions are held together with this one focus, with one purpose, which is God's will. And this was Jesus' ultimate desire, and he reminds us it is to be ours as well. As Jesus faced his own crucifixion in the garden, he petitioned his heavenly Father, take this cup from me. Yet in faithfulness to his Father, in faithfulness to us, Jesus also prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus fulfilled the will of his heavenly Father and by doing so fulfilled our needs according to God's will. As we learn to pray, as we ask Jesus to teach us to pray, we find the fulfillment of our prayer in what Christ has already done. We know that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, saying, Father, this is my beloved. This is the one I love. Hear her. Hear him. Act according to your will in their lives, according to your love for me that you have poured out for them. This is the one I died for, Father. This is the one. Yes, there are many more, but this one, this one is so precious, Father. Listen to them on my behalf. Father, Hear them. May your will be done in their life, in her life, in his life, because of my life given for them, Father. Your heavenly Father knows you. Pray like you're known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to pray like we're known that we're known by you, that we're known by you because of the work of your Son on our behalf. Lord, help us to pray. Papa, Daddy, Lord, for those of us here today that have a difficult and hard time viewing you as our Father, Lord, I pray you'd give us a new vision of what a father is. Lord, for those of us who have had great fathers, I pray that you would help us to not overlook the greatness and the goodness of you, our heavenly father, of your desire for us to come to you in all things. Lord, help us to pray like we're known, that you know us 
that you love us. Lord, we pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.